Let me give attention to reading God's word beginning in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. Zechariah writes, Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. So I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and threw the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, To build a house for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for all of your word. And we recognize that not all of it is equally easily understood by us. Even for Zechariah, the prophet, who was seeing these things firsthand, he had multiple questions. And we come to the text this morning and we too have questions. So we ask reverently, humbly, by your gracious Holy Spirit, our God, teach us. Not only that we may understand this portion of your word, but that, as we have just sung, that your Holy Spirit might come, dwell within us in power, purify us, cleanse us, and make us to shine as your people, individually and together, that we may witness to the glory of Christ and his coming kingdom. In his name we ask, amen. In Zechariah chapter 6, this series of visions that God is giving to Zechariah continue. And they are given primarily to comfort and to give hope to this beleaguered, discouraged, rather small, ragtag group of exiles, of Israelites and Judeans who have returned from exile in Babylon and really scattered over what is modern-day Syria, Uh, Iraq and Iran and not all of them have returned by any stretch as we'll see in a few moments but some have returned under the gracious leading of God they've come back to Judah to the land that had been destroyed by the Babylonians they've come back to Jerusalem the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians to the temple that had been burned and destroyed reduced to rubble and They have started the work of rebuilding the temple, but it came to a halt about 15, 16 years prior to these announcements, these messages by Zechariah. The people are discouraged because of challenges from without. They have enemies, local thugs who are trying to discourage them. They also have the age-old reality of dealing with themselves. Uh, Every church knows what this is, that Our problem is not just the world outside, but our problem as churches, we understand, is first inside in each of our own hearts. And so they're 
struggling and they're being encouraged by the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to renew the work, renew the work of building the temple and to renew their faith in God's covenant promises to Israel and Judah. Zechariah's name means the Lord or Yahweh remembers. And it would seem right now, as we read even in the Psalm 89 this morning, that they, they would read that Psalm and identify it with it very much. It would seem as though all of God's covenant promises to David and to the people of Israel have been forgotten by God, or maybe he changed his mind. And God is giving to Zechariah in particular a series of visions to reinforce and underscore the fact that God has not changed his mind. And as we read in the in the psalm this morning, it's a powerful verse. I can't remember which verse it is exactly, but God says that he will not alter his word. He will not alter his word. I have to alter my words, edit all the time, even on the fly as I preach, and you all learn to interpret sometimes what I'm saying when I start a finish and I a sentence and I don't finish it see you even knew what I was doing there you didn't even flinch and and you just kind of learn okay we got to learn Gabe language and uh, so you're very patient but we we have to edit our sentences we sometimes how many of us know now the reality of texting somebody and after we text it we realize the autocorrect had us saying something that we're horrified that we said and we we uh, those of us who have uh, some phones we're so thankful for that edit uh, form form but God does not alter his word he doesn't have to he doesn't need Grammarly or some AI program to help him to adjust his text Once the word of God issues from the mouth of God, it is unalterable and it will accomplish that for which God spoke it, sent it. And these series of visions are are given to Zechariah and then to the people and even to us. These things were written for our instruction so that we might take heart and know that as bleak and as dark and as discouraging as this world can be, God is not done, and you better plan, believer, in Jesus Christ on him fulfilling down to the jot and tittle every single one of his glorious promises. These are wonderful messages of hope. And yes, here in chapter 5, we have two visions having to do with sin and with evil, but they are in the context of, of encouragement, of comfort. Now, as we saw last Sunday, and the same is true this morning, if we are here this morning and we are bent on unrepentance, if we are here this morning and we have a stiff neck and we are not intending to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are here this morning and we're content with just carrying on with our sin, these are very discomforting texts. Because God is going to remove all sin and sinners from the earth. And so, yes, these are very uncomfortable unless we come to them and come to Christ in humility, recognizing that all of us are sinners, all of us are worthy of judgment. But as we look to Christ, as we trust in Jesus Christ, that as Zechariah's vision concerning Joshua the high priest uh, back in chapter 3, that each one of us, like Joshua the high priest, Jesus is able and has the authority to remove our iniquity and to clothe us in robes of righteousness. For those who are humble, 
contrite, trembling at God's word, grieving over our sin, working on turning from our sin, these verses, these visions in chapter 5 are wonderfully encouraging. And I want to try to help you this morning. Is this world pretty dark right now? Are, are any of you discouraged by the news? Yes? Yeah. And we even see that there are seasons in the world or in the nation where there's an increase of prevalence of lawlessness or wickedness. As Dave alluded to in his prayer, not only the war in Israel, and of course there's the war in Ukraine and there's wars in other places, but these shootings now, how sad is it? I was reflecting with uh, uh, my family this week and it just how sad is it that now when we hear of a shooting at such and such a place, it's just the norm. We're, we're just used to it. It's as horrible as it is. And it can be depressing. And I know some of you are discouraged and you, you see our country going in the direction it's going and you see wickedness and you see that people actually want it. They, they love it so. This is what they want. And we see what's happening on college campuses and all this. And, and, and it can be very discouraging. Well, I, I want to help you this morning. This text helps. I also want to remind you that the Bible never told you that you live in a good place. So anywhere you got the idea that, that we have a right to a season of, of general peace and prosperity and minimal sin, you didn't get that from the Bible. It's true that God does give to peoples and to nations times when there is perhaps more alignment with his law, more living in society in accord with his ways. And we've known that as a nation. We've enjoyed that. But that is not the norm. That is the exception. And we know in the Bible that that norm of peace and righteousness, first of all, it's never existed in totality in human history. Read any history of any society, and you see nothing but the wars and rumors of wars and immorality and all kinds of stuff. If you read history, which we all as Bible people, by the way, should be interested in history, we learn that this old earth is full of sin, is under the curse, and that it is the mercy and grace of God that we know the extent of peace individually and together that we do. It's an amazing thing. Given the corruption of the human heart, given that this world is right now influenced by Satan and his demons, it's amazing that we have as much peace as we do. Sin ruins everything, as we saw last week. Sin is destructive, not just on the individual level, but on the global level. Evil and sin destroy and corrupt, and it always just messes things up. And sin and evil aren't um, weapons, if you will, or, or um, harm that's neat and clean. Sin and evil is like shrapnel. Or like a grenade and the wounds that come from sin and evil are not clean. They are, they are messy. They are, they are um, multifaceted and multilayered and multigenerational. We are living in a fallen world. We are living in a world under the curse. We are living in a world where the majority of men and women 
All of us are sinners, but not only are all of us sinners, we live in a world where the majority of people want to sin, don't want God, don't want Christ. And that all is very discouraging, and understandably so. And that's why a lot of the Psalms, the psalmists are pouring out their heart, expressing to God the experience of living in that kind of world. We groan. Romans 8, Paul says, we groan, creation even groans, longing for the redemption that is to come. We have Christ now, and we rejoice in Christ, don't we? We, we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have in Christ our treasure. We have in Christ enough to satisfy our hearts. Even now, we don't have to wait. We can be satisfied in the glory of God, in the glory of Christ revealed in the scriptures. We have so much given to us now. But, but listen very carefully. We cannot fully enjoy Christ until we are rid not only of the, the penalty of sin, but of the power and even the presence of sin. I can't fully enjoy Christ until God not only takes care of the punishment from our sin, which he did in Christ. But I can't fully enjoy Christ until that day when God completely remakes my my heart and my mind so that I no longer even have the impulse to sin, the inclination. We can't fully enjoy Christ as long as there are sinners and sinful societies and sinful governments who are advocating and pursuing and doing that which is over and against Christ. So we enjoy Christ now, but our enjoyment of Christ is not yet full. It is marred in part by our own sin and by the sin of this world. We groan. God knows that. And that's why here in Zechariah chapter 5, he gives to his people a, a wonderfully encouraging message. And it comes in a mysterious form. It comes in the form of, you might call it a UFO, an unidentified flying object, if ever there was one. And by the way, do I need to say this? There's so much in the news these days about UFOs. Dear believer in Jesus Christ, do not go down that lame line of thinking. And if you're freaked out by unidentified flying objects, you haven't considered what the Bible says about the reality. You live in a world that's full of demonic spirits, okay? So that's something to be afraid of. So don't worry about all this garbage about UFOs. You focus on the scriptures and on what it says, okay? And by the way, you shouldn't, as a believer, be afraid of demons. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than is in the world. But... I just fear how many Christians these days, you know, Fox News or whatever, are just being, they're just getting taken off on this whole UFO stuff. Anyways, sorry, I digress. But I warn you there, don't, don't track there. There is an unidentified flying object in, in chapter 5, verse 5. God shows through an angel speaking to Zechariah another vision. He says to Zechariah in verse 5, lift up your eyes. And see what this is going forth. So Zechariah sees, and he's a young man at this point when he's called to ministry. And so uh, presumably he has pretty good vision. Uh, he doesn't need to go to the eye doctor. doesn't need uh, uh, corrective lenses. He has pretty good vision. But even though he can see this object flying, it is unidentifiable to him. He says, what is that is in essence? 
Uh, that's not what the Hebrew says. That's the Gabe Rogers translation. What is that? Um, what is that flying? And the angel says to uh, Zechariah in verse 6, this is the ephah going forth. Now that right there throws us. Uh, how many of us have ephahs lying around the house? You don't have an ephah lying around the house? No, we don't either. No ephahs. Um, well, an ephah is, is basically like a, a bushel. And some of us are even saying, what's a bushel? But um, a bushel of apples, if you want to call it that. It's, it's not a huge container, but for the Hebrew people, it was the largest measurement, okay? So it's the largest measured container that they would have. It's an ephah. It's like a bushel flying in the sky. And uh, okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and what would we notice about that? We don't want to read too much into it. The basic reality is, this is a measurable container. It's a measurable container. I, why, why is that important? How spread is wickedness in our day? How widespread is it? You think someone's going to be able to figure out stopping all these shootings? Huh? What's the real weapon in all those shootings? Whatever your, whatever your perspective on guns, the real weapon is the corruptness of the human heart. Wickedness is spread. It's spread throughout every heart. It's spread throughout every family. It's spread throughout every government, throughout every culture. It just seems to overflow and spill over. And how many of us know what it is to have a family gathering where, you know, it's supposed to be joyful. It's Christmas and, and we're getting together and, and we maybe go into the family gathering with a little bit of trepidation, just saying, oh, I hope so-and-so doesn't say such-and-such or, or, you know, how it can go. And maybe, maybe that's just my family but maybe some of you can identify. But, uh, you know, a little trip, trepidation about family gatherings, and, and it's, it's going to be a joyful time, we hope, and then, and then it just takes someone, maybe it's even you, you say the wrong thing or, or something you know is wrong, or someone just opens their mouth and says something downright mean and, or gossip or hateful or spiteful, and then you've got all this tension in the room, and, and the kids are still there. They just want to have fun, but all the adults... The event's ruined. That's what wickedness is like. It just, it spreads, it corrupts, it seems to spill over and to know no bounds. But here we learn in the opening verses that Zacharias sees a container. He sees an ephah that is contained. And this is very helpful to us. And so if I can give you my first point here this morning, for those of you who are note takers. God exposes and identifies wickedness. God exposes and identifies wickedness. As I said, an ephah is about one bushel. It's the largest measurement for Hebrews at that time. Notice that this ephah is moving. There's a lot of movement actually in this text. The ephah is moving, the, the, the wickedness is moving, the, the two women with wings like storks are there moving, the ephahs, it's all, there's a lot of movement here. And so this, this is, wickedness is contained, it is identified and exposed. God says through the angel to Zechariah when he asks, what is that? 
And he answers, this is the ephah that's going forth. And he says, this is the appearance, their appearance in all the land. In other words, this ephah is a picture of the sin that is throughout all the land, not only Israel, but throughout the whole earth. We learn down in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, it's called wickedness. This is wickedness. Now, this is very strange for us. We look at this, it must have been quite strange for Zechariah as well. <laughs> he sees a container and it's flying and he asks what it is and he's told whatever is in this pot is an illustration of what the people's sin is like throughout all the land. There's a lead cover over this ephah. Lead, why? It's, it's, in other words, it's heavy. It's not going to move. And there's a woman sitting inside the ephah. Now, now be careful with this. The message is not uh, women are wicked. <laughs> Guys, be careful with that, all right? I, some of you are, I knew it! I knew it. <laughs> okay, well, if you want to go down that line, you have a real problem when you get to the New Testament and even the Old Testament, and the Antichrist is the lawless man, the man of sin. So, sorry, men and women, male, female, you can't enter into the text here any of your petty little uh, wars between the sexes, okay? That's not what this is about. Um, and Sin or wickedness is personified here. In other words, wickedness is, is made the appearance of a person. And yes, in this case, it is a woman. And, and you don't need to read into that anymore that in Hebrew, the, the word evil is always in the feminine form. Okay? So don't overthink it. Uh, don't do more with that than what the Holy Spirit intended. And uh, very interesting, when you get to Revelation, the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 17, we are introduced to a very similar character. John, the apostle of Christ, in Revelation 17, verse 3, was carried away by the Spirit. He also sees a vision, and he sees a vision of a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns, symbols of power and authority. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, and this is what was written, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So in the Old and New Testament, in prophecy, sin itself or wickedness, immorality is personified as a, a woman. You might call her a witch, an evil, vile, wretched woman. And she is identified with Babylon. Um, you see here in the text that later on, we'll, we'll see this, they, the, the ephah is carried to Shinar. Shinar is modern-day Iraq where Babylon was located. Babylon stemming from the word Babel, where in Genesis chapter 11, that's the place where the men and women of the earth... Uh, 
refused God's command to multiply and fill the earth. They wanted to stay together to defy God. They started building a tower and God judged them and confused their language. Where did that all happen? In Shinar, in Babylon. So Babylon in scripture, both in the past and in the future, is central to the the uh, the war against God and against Christ. It is the capital, as it were, of Satan's antichrist kingdom. So first we learn in verses 5 through 8, God exposes this wickedness and identifies it. He exposes the wickedness of the people. This, you know, sin and wickedness is not an impersonal force floating around. Sin, as we learned last week, is personal. The inclination to sin is in all of us. And willful, flagrant sin should not be found among God's people, but it sure is prevalent on this world. And this woman here is revealed, exposed, and revealed as wickedness. And notice in verse 8, when God says, through the angel, this is wickedness. It's not funny. It's not a. It's not a, a, a term to snicker at. All sin against God is truly wretched and wicked, and God is in part exposing that corrupt nature. This is wickedness, and this is the wickedness of the people. God knows the wickedness of his people. It, it is exposed. We know that God can see our sins. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, listen to this. It says there, there is no creature hidden from his, that is God's sight. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to we have an account to give or with whom we have to do. All things are open to God. How silly it is of men and women for us to think that there's aspects of our thought life or of our deeds done in private that God does not see. Words spoken in whispers. God knows, God sees it all. And so first here, God exposes it and he reveals to Zechariah, I know the sin of the people. Here in Israel at this time in Judah, their exiles have returned. But one of the things that prophet Haggai is dealing with is that the people have grown to love the world. That had happened among his people. When God brought Israel and Judah in particular into exile, he stripped them mostly of their idolatry. In exile in Babylon, they, they put aside many of their graven images. So the flagrant forms of idolatry of their past were largely removed. But what started to happen is, as God blessed the Israelites in exile, they began to become comfortable. Because they took God, yes, God judged them, God put them into exile. But you know what? They began to flourish wherever they were. We see that around the world today. Uh, more Jewish people have won the Nobel Peace Prize than any other people group. There's all kinds of fascinating statistics. How do you explain that? I have no other explanation for that than the blessing of God. 
Wherever they have gone all around the earth, God has blessed his people. And they began to thrive in Babylon. How many positions? Ezra, um, like Nehemiah or Daniel a little earlier, Mordecai, Esther. It's amazing how many of God's people, the Jews, God raised to places of influence in the nations that they were exiled to. So they go away into exile and their family settles there and they begin to form a business and they start to make money and they start to be comfortable and the prospect of returning to Judah doesn't sound all that great. That's why it's not actually in the, in the return to Jerusalem. Initially, there weren't that many. There were about 50,000. That's not that many in comparison to all that were exiled. Why? Why didn't more return? Because they were comfortable. Because returning meant leaving behind what they had earned or what they had built. They were tempted to love the world. And even those who did return in the prophecies of Haggai, God has to correct them and to rebuke them. God had to challenge them in Haggai chapter 1 verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while... This house, the temple, lies in ruins. So now, says the Lord, set your heart to consider your ways. So the people were, who even returned, they were giving priority to building their own houses. What is, what's God's problem with paneled houses? Um, some of us may be thinking, boy, I, I better not put paneling in my house. I'll get in trouble. No, that is not what it's about. The idea was... They were putting their own desires and needs first and leaving the priority of the worship and the honor of God to the leftovers. We can do that. Better believe that's happening here in New England. Too many Christians saying, oh, yes, I uh, bemoaning the state of the church here in New England. Oh, I wish there was more biblical churches. I wish, I wish there was more churches I could send my children and grandchildren to, encourage them to go. We, we can mourn over the fact that the church is not very strong here in New England. And yet, how many believers in Jesus Christ give to God the first and highest priority, who long for his worship to be glorious, for his gospel to be preached? So we know what this is. This is old-fashioned worldliness. This is why John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 2 said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, says John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We're here to do the will of God. And God gives to us many good gifts. We are thankful for comfort, for homes, for, for properties, for, for fun activities. These are all good gifts from God. But when the things that God gives us as gifts, safety and possessions, become our first love, we're in trouble. So whether it's overt sexual immorality, lust, greed, worldliness, whatever it is, whether it's found among the world out there or among God's people in here or among the people of Israel, it is, verse 8, it is wickedness. There is no such thing as a small sin. All sins may not be equal in, in weightiness, but all sin is truly 
wicked, wicked. So God exposes and identifies wickedness. And it is, secondly, this morning, God restrains and contains wickedness. God restrains and contains wickedness. We've already learned this. The wickedness, this personified as this woman, the harlot of Babylon, is contained in this ephah. And there's a lead lid on it. Verse 8, the angel who was speaking with Zechariah threw down wickedness into the middle of the ephah and threw the lead weight on its opening. That is so encouraging that as unbounded as wickedness seems, as out of control evil and wickedness seems, just drive around and you find out how uncontrolled it is. Has anybody noticed these days that a red light apparently is just suggestive? I mean, and that has changed. Ten years ago, you did not see every other time you were at the traffic light, someone flying through a red light. Look, and I know some of us, we sometimes missed it and we squeezed a little bit of orange juice when we were getting through that red light. But I'm talking about flagrant disregard of the law, lawlessness, and it's on the increase multiplied in our culture right now, isn't it? And it seems out of control. It seems uncontained. And in some measures it is because, as we said earlier, wickedness spreads. Wickedness is is everywhere. Wickedness is within every human heart. But here we learn the equal truth that even as unbounded and as powerful and dominating as wickedness seems, God is still sovereign yet. Wickedness is not on the throne in heaven God is with Christ. And there's boundaries and there are bounds of wickedness. And wickedness is is taken and wickedness is thrown down and wickedness is contained. And God, through Christ, puts a lid on it. I love that about God. And I love that about Christ. He can handle sin. He can handle wickedness. And we need to be careful right now. I think there's a great temptation for we who are believers right now. There's a great temptation for our awe of sin and wickedness to keep elevating, going up and up and up. And so our hearts go down and down and down and down. And it is understandable that we are grief-stricken when we hear about deeds of vileness and and these shootings and and the wickedness that takes place and the abuse of children and abortion, the murder of children. Our hearts should grieve, but we need to be careful that we keep a biblical perspective and that we don't allow our awe to increase so much for wickedness that somehow it's as though Christ is not equal to the task. He not only conquered sin, our sin at the cross, by paying atonement for our sins so that we are forgiven, but understand that at the cross, Christ, our champion, secured the right to one day, as it were, take wickedness by the neck and throw her down into the very bottom of the pit of hell. So that their one way out day will be on this earth, the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and every molecule every square inch of this universe will be free 
of sin. Not because it naturally kind of just, you know, worked its way out, but because God in his sovereign, mighty majesty removed sin from the hearts and the records of his people and removed sin and sinners from very creation itself. Worship Christ. Worship Christ. Be in awe of Christ because God and Christ restrain and contain wickedness. It is not unbounded. It is not without uh, end. But thirdly and finally, God sets wickedness up for a great fall. The end of wickedness is coming. Verses 9 through 11, Zechariah keeps looking and he sees two women coming out with the wind in their wings. There's debate as to whether you know, are these angels? Are these demons? Uh, likely demons, it would seem. Either way, whether angels or evil angels, demons, these messengers are under the sovereign control of God. It's not as though sin, that wickedness under wraps under the lid is somehow escaping. But under the sovereign supervision of God, these two spirit beings likely wicked because the stork was an unclean bird it was it was off the menu for israelites it was on the no-no list and uh, it is of course storks have big wings they can fly a great distance the idea here is that this wickedness that is contained will be uh, placed under the sovereign control of god ultimately set on a pedestal, verse 11. You say, what's going on? It seems backward. It seems like God's going to bring an end to sin, and yet we, at the end of chapter 5, wickedness is, seems to be getting away and seems to be going to Shinar, to Babylon, home, as it were, and, and there actually being given a house. What is the house? The house could be um, a worship. Remember, the people of Israel were building the house of the Lord. This is the house of Shinar, the house of the harlot of Babylon. This is representative of this world's false system of worship. This is representative of the worship system of the Antichrist, ultimately. And interestingly, that it would seem that during, in the last days and during the days of the tribulation, that that region of, we know as Iraq today and Babylon in that region, that that will once again become a center for the commerce and the influence and the religious influence of the Antichrist and his system. And if that seems out of outlandish to you, where's all the, what's all the news about right now? Huh, it's interesting. It's all about Israel, just a little bit southwest of Shinar. It's all about Turkey. It's all about Syria, which is just due west of Shinar. It's all about Russia, which is due north of Shinar. It's all about Iran, which is just to the east of Shinar. Everything's being set up. I have no prophecy as far as date or time. I'm just saying we are seeing unfold before our very eyes, understanding that this is where it's going to go down. And somehow in the last days, in that area of the world that the whole United Nations and the world is fixated right now, that is going to be the center of this system of wickedness. And we might think, oh no, 
Oh, no. That's a place where lots of oil and lots of power and lots of influence. And uh, By the way, that region is where the, all of the ancient cultures, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Elamites, the Babylonians, that is the area right in that territory where all these great empires of old rose out of and where their, their capitals were located. Well, no, wickedness isn't getting away. Do you see it? Wickedness is being set up. Wickedness is being set up. Oh, yeah, put up on an altar. But in God's holy justice, in the last days, he's going to permit wickedness to build a house and to have a place, finally, in the very place where mankind presumed to be able to rebel against the Most High, to be able to make a tower. Well, God's going to say, you want to build a house, you want to build a tower, you go right ahead. It's going to be an act of righteous justice. He's going to allow wickedness to prevail in the last days, in that period of time, when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is revealed the harlot of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And when she is set up and will seemingly have a period of great success, great influence over all the world. He's set up to being to fall. Again, I, I just wonder, does some of this sound spectacular to some of you? We have no idea if Islam is the ultimate religion of the Antichrist. But could you have conceived even 15 years ago that Islam would have the kind of advance it has around the world and even in our country? Europeans right now don't know what to do with this. They're realizing that in their nations, are, and I'm not saying that every Muslim person, all right, is, is any more evil or wicked than any unbelieving uh, New Hampshireite. But you see, Islam is spreading and again don't be alarmed you shouldn't be alarmed by that but it is and so you shouldn't be shocked we shouldn't be shocked that there one day will be a system whether it's islam whether it is it's a system it's a worldly antichrist system that will be located in that portion of the world and it will seem to prosper but in zechariah 5 verse 11 we learn that there's going to be a house built and that wickedness will be set there on her own pedestal. And the reason for that is she'll be set up on a pedestal for a great fall. The harlot may not be Humpty Dumpty, but the harlot will have a great fall. And no one will pair back together again. Revelation 17 if you want to turn there in closing, Revelation chapter 17. There are a lot of similarities between what God revealed to Zechariah and what God revealed to the Apostle John. This woman, this harlot being representative of the immorality of this world. She seems to have great success. Chapter 17, verse 18, she is 
John is told that the woman that he sees is the great city, that is Babylon, which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. But after he sees this, he's, he's learned, I'm not going to read all of chapter 17 and 18, you can read it later and you'll see the, the similarities. But this, this system located in Babylon will come crashing down. Chapter 18, verse 1, after these things, after he sees this vision of the harlot and her power and this woman, he sees another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And the angel cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and prison of every unclean spirit, prison of every unclean bird, prison of every unclean and hateful beast. You see there the containment? For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality, and the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality with her, this anti-God, anti-Christ system. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by her power and her sensuality. God causes people to come out of her. Turn over to chapter 18, verse 20. Finally, She is destroyed. The great city is destroyed. That's what chapter 18 of Revelation describes. And in chapter 18, verse 20, this system personified as a a wicked woman set up on the pedestal, as it were, comes crashing down. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And God says in verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel picked up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. God sets wickedness. God is setting wickedness up for a great fall. So in closing, we have a decision, all of us. Who do we want to align with? It may seem very easy right now to go along with the world, to love the world, to love the things of the world more than we love Christ and his kingdom. But that is a bad investment. Because to align ourselves with the world and to love the world is to love the harlot, to be against God, to be against Christ. And we've learned this morning that those who are aligned with her, with wickedness, will be cast down. But the greatest pastoral application from this text, I believe, is one of comfort for Christ's people. Not only does Christ remove our sin, we who trust in Christ and his death on the cross for our sins, not only does he remove our sin from us, not only does he clothe us in his own righteousness, like he clothed Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. But for we who are in Christ, the day is coming when we will witness the great crash and crumbling down, throwing down of this godless, Christless, violent, wretched, wicked system. And there will be a time when our hearts will no longer groan. And God will remove not only Satan, not only demons, not only the Antichrist, but not only sin, but every sinner. 
so that everyone you meet in the kingdom of Christ one day will be holy through and through, not even with the capability of sinning. No more passwords. No more locks on doors. No more rumors. No more gossip. No more fears. No more doubts. No more anxiety. No more wounds from one another, physical or emotional. All life all goodness, all laughter, all joy, all song, all healing, all gladness, world without end in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Does that encourage you this Christmas season? That not only does God give us Christ, but with Christ, God gives us one day the enjoyment of an earth and a heaven where there will be no longer any wickedness. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are so powerful, so sovereign, that you can contain the seemingly uncontainable. You know how our hearts groan over the extent of sin in this world. We see the violence and the wretchedness and the, the stealing and the lying and the harm against innocent ones. And we long and we cry out, O oh God, how long? How long, as the psalmist said this morning, how long, O oh Lord? We long for your coming, Lord Jesus, in our being gathered to you and the unfolding of these things so that once and for all, finally, Satan and the Antichrist and the system of evil of this world can be cast down and the kingdom of God can be ushered in. We long for those days. Lift up our hearts, even as we groan. Help us to drink deeply of the, your promises, to breathe the air, as it were, of that kingdom that is in the future, so that even today, that our hearts may rejoice. God, forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us that our hearts so often love something or someone more than you. We confess it as wicked, and we want to turn from it today. We love you, Lord Jesus. Please possess the entirety of our hearts by your spirit. We ask in your name. Amen.